This is Macro Horizons, episode 47, for Day Weekend, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of December 2nd. And a reminder to SIFMA's holiday recommendations, you ain't the boss of me. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. So Ian, I could get behind this three-day week thing. Just give it time. It was an interesting week in the treasury market, although not if you look at the net price action. We saw a fair amount of treasury issuance hit the market, reasonably well received overall as a theme, not surprising. The official holiday on Thursday, coupled with the early close on Friday, which most people are interpreting as an opportunity to make a four-day weekend, there really was a condensed set of notable moves in the treasury market. We saw an initial attempt at a bid, which faded relatively quickly as a theme that 175 in 10-year yields is holding. The economic data was not definitive. We had some upward revisions on the GDP front, some disappointment on the core inflation side, and all of this at a point when the Fed has made it abundantly clear that they have no intention of continuing to cut rates in December. This sets up an important debate as we think about the market in 2020. If the Fed isn't continuing to ease, and core inflation still undershoots expectations, how will the treasury market respond? From our perspective, that will go counter to our bias, our bias being a re-steepening of the curve, because if the Fed isn't willing to react to a lower inflation environment than presently anticipated, this would fall into the classic category of a policy error, which would in turn flatten the curve. Again, not our base case scenario for the beginning of the year. We continue to see a bearish re-steepening, at least on the margin, although the big trade for 2020, which frankly we didn't realize in its entirety in 2019, will be the cyclical re-steepening of the curve led by the front end of the market as the Fed comes to the realization that they will need to do more in terms of policy stimulus in the second half of the year. This says very little about the trading dynamics over the course of the next three or four weeks. We're reminded that there is seasonal upward pressure on rates into the end of the year. However, there are some significant event risks on the horizon. In the upcoming week, ISM manufacturing, 
coupled with the employment report and all the anecdotes leading up to the BLS data will inform the trading direction for treasuries. Whether or not a stronger NFP print will be enough to challenge 2% tins remains to be seen. The flip side being disappointment on the manufacturing and non-manufacturing ISM side combined with an as-expected or more mundane employment report could ultimately pressure rates toward the bottom end of the local range. In that context, we'll be keeping an eye on that 170 level in 10-year yields. The curve is as the curve does, frankly. We've seen a re-steepening that ultimately ended up being a fade once we got to the high 20s, low 30s. We're now back to the mid-teens. Not a particularly exciting place for twos tends to be. And if anything, we would expect a continued grind over the upcoming week with a bias for the recent flats to be rejected in favor of a drift higher back into the middle point of the range that was in place for the prior two or three months. So we have three weeks until true year-end conditions come into play. Are we expecting a break of the range, a move steeper? How are we thinking about the end of the year? Well, in December in particular, we do tend to see a concerted upward pressure on rates. On average, when we do have a bearish December, it's worth about 25 basis points. So in the context of a Fed that will be transitioning to an on-hold policy stance, economic data that seems to be staying the course, if not improving on the margin, we certainly haven't seen a massive deterioration of the economic data. It holds that a retest of the upper bound in 10-year yields at 197 is the path of least resistance, at least at this moment. There are plenty of reasons to suggest that the choppy year-end conditions might expand the range, which in 10-year yields is currently roughly 170 to 2%. However, the macro narrative will become far more interesting as 2020 gets underway. We start to see the realities of the fourth quarter's real GDP print, and we get a better sense of A, how the consumer performed during the holiday shopping season, and B, what the employment landscape looks like in the new year. Before we get to December 31st, though, in my mind, at least, there are really two major risk events that could dictate where treasuries reprice to, and both come during the second week of December. And so these two are, one, certainly the December FOMC, the update on the summary of economic projections, how the committee's thinking about things, do they have it in their mind that they might be hiking next year? If you go back to the October meeting, the end of cuts, they were actually quite successful at talking the market into removing a cut bias without leading to a sharp tightening of financial conditions. December 11th, on the other hand, brings another opportunity for a policy error. You imagine they're going to want to ignite a policy error trade, something akin to December of last year. The other thing that I'd point out is we do get the British election going into Brexit. Now, I only see this really catalyzing broad price action if there's surprise here. And as of now, it certainly looks like the Conservative Party is set to win the majority. But I would put this on people's radar in case we get a surprise outcome. Let us not forget that the December 15th potential tariffs will also come into play. Whether we get a deal next week or immediately ahead of the 
potential tariff rollout still remains to be seen. There's also a reasonable possibility that the administration simply extends that deadline as negotiations start to heat up for at least a phase one deal. We've noted this several times in the past, but it is nonetheless striking how a year ago we were talking about the potential for a comprehensive deal that truly recasts the way that U.S. and China behave on the international goods exchange stage, where now the administration is simply trying to cobble together something akin to window dressing, which allows both parties to ultimately claim some type of victory in the negotiation. As this pertains to the treasury market, whereas in 2018, a trade deal might have been worth 35, 40 basis points in 10-year yields. At this stage, any trade deal will at most be worth, call it 15 to 20 basis points in 10s as an initial repricing, and that will ultimately prove to be a fade. The price action in the equity market, on the other hand, has continued to respond relatively fluidly to developments on the trade war front. In this context, it's important to keep in mind that monetary policy has done a lot of the heavy lifting as well. John, as you have pointed out in the past, if we look at where equity prices were in November of 2018 and the prevailing stance of monetary policy, i.e. a tightening bias, shrinking the balance sheet, inflationary aspirations for the year ahead versus where we are now, the Fed has not only ended shrinking the balance sheet and stopped hiking rates, but they've cut rates and they've gone back to expanding the balance sheet. And equities are only a few small percentage points above the November 2018 levels. And in a lot of ways, what the Fed has really done is foam the runway in response to and ahead of additional trade tensions and tariffs. That's a natural offset to tighter financial conditions from those versions of import taxes. And one of the reasons in my mind why we've seen such equity strength is because if you look at real rates in the U.S. in particular, they haven't been accelerating upwards the way they did in the second half of 2018. As a result, I think this is kind of what the soft landing the Fed had envisioned looks like, at least for now. They've been able to execute their 75 mid-cycle adjustment. The data seems to be calming. Equity markets and implied volatility are in rather good places. But at the end of the day, 10-year rates are still solidly under 2%. 30-year rates are now back below 2.2%. It really doesn't speak much as to the long-term potential for the U.S. economy in terms of both real or nominal terms. But it does emphasize one reality, which is that for all the concern we've had over the past year and a half about lack of monetary policy efficacy, it's not zero. And those 75 basis points of cuts did have a significant impact. The flip side of that, of course, is if you were worried about monetary policy space with overnight rates near 2.5, you're a lot more worried with it with Fed funds near 1.5. I guess I would add to that when we think about how effective monetary policy is, one of the obvious places to focus is the housing market. Mortgage rates have been pushed much lower over the course of the year, but the response in the housing market and real estate more broadly has been muted overall. Now, we know that part of that narrative has to do with the perception that prices still remain elevated and, frankly, out of the reach of the key first-time home buying segment of the U.S. economy, 
who, as a group, has seen relatively benign real wage gains, and as a result, broader buying conditions remain much lower than would be implied by the outright level of mortgage rates. From my perspective, at least, that is a classic indication that the Fed is pushing on a proverbial string, at least in that regard. And just as an additional point of nuance, this isn't to say that the Fed's cuts have had no effect on the housing market. It was only in summer 2018 where the housing market was one of the Fed's top three risks. Clearly, 75 basis points of cuts have brought it down from that top three position. But the fact that private fixed investment has actually weighed on growth in six of the last seven quarters is surely not a good sign at this stage. Especially when you look at the composition of real GDP overall, it's not just the real estate market that has been a net drag. We've also seen a drag from international trade, which follows intuitively. CapEx has also been down two quarters in a row. Now, that's consistent with the uncertainties related to the ongoing trade war, but it is nonetheless relevant, especially when the last pillar of economic growth remains consumption both goods and services. And as the point was made earlier, the Treasury market with tens under 2% as we transition into a pivotal year in terms of both domestic politics and monetary policy, as well as changes overseas, it will be interesting to see if the momentum can persist if we see a more durable slowdown in real growth. And we still think 2020 will get off to a good start, at least in terms of optimism. But Would you say there's an argument to be made that, say we get a Q4 GDP print somewhere in line with the Fed's GDP trackers, 0.5, 0.4%, is there a risk that some may call policy error? Well, I think it would certainly set up positioning for that trade. And it would be more than just the Q4 print that you'd need to have that point really hammered home. One, you'd need an FOMC that's both on hold and not willing to respond to that Q4 GDP print. You could hear Powell use the word transitory once again, something like that. So you have a weak GDP print, you have the Fed on hold. And the key final ingredient I would point out is what's going on with the trade deal in that context. If you still haven't had a phase one deal signed, something like the delay you referred to, Ian, the combination of those three things, to me, set up a bullish case in the treasury market and a flatter curve. That's your policy error trade, Ben, though that is far from my base case. It's also conceivable that we could see the Fed spin any transitory weakness in the real economy as a risk that they foresaw, which is why they've already cut 75 basis points. And that gets us back to the notion that there's a certain amount of lagged impact from monetary policy. And that frankly is why the Fed has decided to take a breather from rate cuts to see the overall impact of the stimulus they've already delivered. I'd say we're already starting to hear some of that. Kaplan on Tuesday came out and said both Q4 GDP is going to be weak and monetary policy is in a good place. That only makes rational sense if they're trying to look through the data print in the form that you pointed out. And to be fair, it seems that almost every year, Q1 is kind of looked through by the market. A common adage is what happens in Q1 stays in Q1, Q1 happens, and investors pretty quickly move on. This has been attributed to some struggles with the seasonal adjustment, but that will also be an additional detail to keep in mind as 2020 gets underway. Beyond simply the economic data as the new year comes into focus, there does tend to be a 
consistent shift toward a bit of pessimism that we tend to see during the end of the summer, the beginning of the fall, to a more optimistic outlook as the year comes to an end. Q4s in general have been characterized by the notion that next year is going to be great for whatever reason, whether it's reflationary, whether it's pro-business initiatives, whether it's monetary policy stimulus. And I would expect that the beginning of 2020 will keep with this tradition that implies upward pressure on risk assets as well as treasury yields. Although a very good counterpoint would be a situation in which the fourth quarter's data, which is reported in January and February, starts to reflect greater headwinds than are currently being priced into the market. And we've made it this far looking into 2020 without mentioning one of the major risk events of the year, which is going to be the presidential election in November. Without trying to pontificate on any individual candidates, one historical nuance that I'd point out is if you look at presidents running for re-election, if they've had a recession in the last two years of their first term, nobody has been re-elected since McKinley over 100 years ago. On the other hand, Every president who was running for re-election that did not have a recession in the second half of their first term was re-elected. If we take that as a baseline, ignoring anything else, that certainly suggests the probability of four more years of President Trump. In keeping with the topic of recessionary risks, one of the things that jumps out at me at least is the relevance of this holiday season for reinforcing the needed economic momentum to avoid a recession. It's not inconceivable that all the uncertainties presently in the market limit consumers' willingness to spend this season, and the political ramifications for that are far more relevant than I think they have been, at least in the prior holiday seasons in memory. More immediately on the horizon, we have the employment report coming up on the 6th of December. Now, these are going to be jobs figures for the month of November. And given some of the variability that we have seen in the manufacturing sector because of the auto strikes, it will be notable if there is any give back on that front. And also, as we have been focused on throughout the bulk of 2019, the unemployment rate, which remains at or near the cycle lows, may at some point start to reflect some of the broader economic jitters that we see evident in the corporate sector, particularly the ISM figures and the CEO confidence survey. Kind of in that line of thinking, one thing I was looking at was initial jobless claims and continuing claims. They're certainly near cycle lows, but the rate of change of those figures is equally important. Generally, when they're declining, the labor market's improving, what we see on a year-over-year -year change basis is that they've kind of flatlined. Now, perhaps that's the soft landing at equilibrium employment that every economist dreams of. In reality, though, that could imply that the labor market is either running out of steam, hitting a saturation point, what have you, or is just hitting true tightness. And it will also be useful to look at the labor market participation rate as we consider whether or not there is shadow slack remaining in the employment market, or if what we're seeing with a relatively low participation is simply a reflection of an aging population which has transitioned from the workforce into retirement. Oh, retirement. I heard that used to be a thing. Yes, long ago. 
It used to be a thing. In the week ahead, the fundamental offerings in the treasury market will overshadow the technicals at least for a few trading sessions. Notably, the employment report from November will be an important setup for the end of the year, although at the end of the day, low volume trading conditions, relatively light staffing levels, and a lack of conviction to any significant move will continue to be the hallmarks of December in the U.S. rates market. We still have the FOMC meeting on the horizon. We won't get a great deal of insight from any Fed speakers between now and the actual event itself. However, what we have heard thus far suggests that the Fed is very comfortable with rates where they currently are, content to see a relatively soft fourth quarter GDP print and still not feel compelled to react with additional stimulus on the monetary policy side. Let us not forget the December 15th tariff deadline, whether this ultimately gets extended, shifted, or changed in any particular way is going to be a function of the ongoing negotiations between the White House and Beijing. To suggest that we have any particular insight in how this plays out would be overstating our expertise, to be sure. However, if experience is any guide, we would anticipate the proverbial can to be kicked down the road a bit further. Is that interpreted as risk on or risk off? That remains to be seen. In recent episodes, however, it seems that every development that isn't decidedly bad for the trade war ends up being net positive for the equity market. One of the questions that we've been grappling with is, why does it appear that the treasury market has missed out on this risk on episode that has brought the equity complex back to and through record highs. Part of the reason is it's somewhat self-fulfilling insofar as low rates and an easy Fed are net positive for risk assets. So one would expect as long as rates remain in a relatively tight range and there isn't any significant new headwind for equities that a melt up would be the path of least resistance. Our biggest concern is what happens when there is a hurdle or a roadblock of relevance. The Fed has already put a great deal of effort into ensuring that equity volatility doesn't spike, thereby tightening financial conditions. There will be a point in which either the Fed needs to be involved again or by stepping back and letting the market movement simply run their course, they will risk an exaggerated sell-off into correction territory, which will once again force Powell's hand as it did at the end of 2018. A sell-off in equities is not our base case scenario as we contemplate the end of 2019. Nonetheless, it is a risk that's on the radar as we watch December unfold will be the first to admit to a certain degree of headline fatigue as the dueling narratives of trade deal on, trade deal off, trade deal on, trade deal off continue to play out in the market and the media. We remain perplexed by how comfortable the market is in continuing to trade a phase one deal when in fact the only deal that ever really mattered for the global economy was the one that could have been struck in 2018 or even at the beginning of 2019 as the administration looked to 
truly recast the United States' role on the global trade stage. At this point, the deal is nothing more than window dressing. Sure, it might be worth a few basis points in 10-year yields and re-steepen the curve on some misplaced reflationary ambitions. But at the end of the day, the market is going to be in a range. The Fed is responsible for the grind-up in equity prices. And it will be fascinating to see how it all plays out and if Powell and company are ultimately able to avoid a domestic recession in the U.S. But as they say, that is decidedly a tomorrow problem. Or one for the next decade. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. As tryptophan comas replace holiday travel fatigue, just remember, that pumpkin pie isn't going to eat itself. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at B-M-O dot com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts, and commodity options or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you. To the extent applicable, we'll rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast.
For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.